like the word. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so on that ground, Gareth, Kingdom mm -hmm. Hearts is ultimately a game where Goofy murders people by beating them to death with a shield. <laughs> okay. I still All... think it's for little tiny diaper babies, though. <laughs> so, Every time yeah. they talk, it's bad. Except when Goofy talks, then it's good. Or when Donald talks. Because they say fucking weeb-ass anime shit about garbage shonen nonsense... But it's Goofy the dog and Donald Duck, and they murder people. Again, anytime one of Tetsuya Nomura's, like, zipper or hot topic anime weeb children uh, gets all edgelord on the screen, it's bad. And that's most of it. So I'm not, you're right in your gut instinct. But sometimes Goofy's like, gosh, Mickey, we gotta destroy the heartless, gosh. And you're like, that's what I'm here for. Right there. <laughs> Okay, welcome to Death Sentence, everyone. Uh, it's a week, uh, weekly show about books. And, um, sorry for the last 11 minutes and 20 seconds. We, we just took that right out of your life. You're not you going to get back. You just need to edit the episode so it starts like right there and it just sort of drops in on him explaining gonna, the end of Kingdom like, Hearts. just going to fade up <laughs> Stuff about Kingdom Hearts. <laughs> it could be like my uh, my busted ass copy of a uh, still life that I torrented when I was fourteen, where the fade in for the more was seven minutes long. <laughs> it's just an eleven minute fade in of me getting progressively louder about Kingdom Hearts. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's what the fads have come to expect. <laughs> Gareth delivers the goods, and I'm like a seasoning. <laughs> Add a little too much seasoning, it kind of ru ruins the uh, ruins the dish. If you don't like me, <laughs> so shut the fuck up. All right. Uh... So with us today is uh, a comic artist and uh, cultural crit critic. Sounds a bit too um, dweeby for what you actually do. Uh, she she writes essays of, of criticism, but they're like the good kind of essay where you read them and you're like, this is both smart and compelling. Uh, I don't feel bad or pretentious for having read this. And it's not stupid. So like that perfect, that perfect little window. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. I appreciate it. Yeah. So, Sarah. Uh, yes. Right. So tell us about yourself where, where are you from what what uh what, what's your like background who are you <laughs> um well i am from kind of the middle of america uh i was born in oklahoma um kind of grew up in missouri um bumped around i went to like college in new orleans uh lived a little bit in new england and some time in florida and now i'm back in oklahoma um i make and write about comics but i've always i've always wanted to be a writer um but i then decided i wanted to write comics and i couldn't draw so i decided i need to learn how to draw and uh that's just kind of been the last um say seven or eight years has been kind of building that out and growing my skills and just kind of like um telling more and more 
stories with that. And I, and I, and I enjoy, like, I still enjoy like writing, um, even just like criticism. So I do that as well. Cause it kind of like, uh, helps me kind of burn concepts into my brain, which kind of helps, uh, the, the work and sort of focus how I'm, how I'm doing things narratively. So I like, I like that idea like of like doing criticism to like sharpen your blade of criticism of writing. And yeah. Wait, so you taught yourself to draw. Can, can that actually be done? Cause I would really like to make comics and I'm resigned to the fact that unless I like stumble across a comic book artist in some kind of like meet cute situation, it's not just, it's just not going to happen to me. But can you actually like sit down and make yourself a good artist? Because you're a good artist. Oh, thank you. Then yes, you can. Because <laughs> uh, I, um, I well, let's see. I was, I think, twenty six. I started doing these comics out of like collage comics in Photoshop, where I was cutting up like uh, fashion magazines and movie stills to make comics. Um, but I was getting to the point where just to, like make a hand, I would have to like cut up like. 10 different images and so i was like it would be better if i just learned to draw a hand um and this was like <laughs> 28 or 29 and i'm 36 now so um yeah i just kind of uh i at the time i was working a night audit hotel job so i had a lot of time at night and i would just spend about you know four to six hours there like redrawing stuff that i really liked and then um, I'd go home and do about four hours there and it probably, yeah. And so I've been doing that since then. And I mean, I'm still, I'm still in, the, I'm still like improving a lot, like as I kind of go, I'm still, I think I'm still in a very like rapid growth stage as an artist, but um, I would say it probably was maybe two, probably two years before I had something that was like people started to like kind of pay attention to in terms of like me drawing it. Um, but I also, I think like the, I also had people who were interested in my stuff from the collage comics that I had done. So that kind of helped. Um, I also think the reason my art is the way that it is comes from doing the collage comics first because like my, composition and like my um colors and then like my texture are the things that are like farther along um because those are the like sort of the three variables i could use with the collages and so i'm still sort of growing my ability to draw like you know tables that look like tables or at least how i want a table to look yeah that that classic uh bullshit frustration of like figure work and how like I, I know some people who've been like that are like in their sixties and have been drawing their entire lives, and they're like, "Yep," I, and they'll like have this pocket list that they can tell you, be like, "Here's the things that I can't draw, and I just avoid them." And you're like, <laughs> "What?" But you're you're fucking great, and you're like, y "You think I'm great because I don't put in the shit that I can't draw? I just I drives me fucking crazy." <laughs> <laughs> like like hands, like very few people can draw can, a good hand. Oh, yeah, hands it's like tough it became this like joke amongst people who don't know as much about art. They just hear like art criticism memes about um, artists obscuring feet to not draw feet. And it's like, you draw a foot, you draw a <laughs> foot that looks fucking normal and 
You do that for like two weeks. Now, now wrap around your head that if you don't draw good, you don't eat, and you'll understand why feet disappear all the time. <laughs> yeah, like it's sort of a like lot of, um, like Leonardo da Vinci trying to get a hand right. Like if if he can't get a yeah. hand right, then you can kind of feel okay with not getting a hand right. We literally have dozens of pages of him just drawing hands rotating back and forth very slowly. If you can draw, he invented tanks, so. You know. <laughs> Smart guy. If you can draw hands and uh, like good sort of faces, um, that's pretty much ninety percent of being able to be like a top comic artist. Because like that's basic. Because so much of like uh, storytelling is being able to nail that sort of very basic um, expression. Those very basic expressions and like allow people to sort of uh, uh, sort of emotionally invest in what's between the panels yeah it's Uh, like we have um we we have plenty of brilliant artists who develop themselves so that they can do fairly abstract frames um but a good like 80 to 90 percent of frames that aren't like supposed to be big grandiose splash images are going to be focused on hands and faces it's also one of the big reasons why um Literary, uh, like literature tends to focus either on the faces and bodies of people or on immediate sensorial information that say like a figure would be looking at as though the, the prose is a camera lens because like for whatever reason we, <laughs> it's one of the big struggles of avant-garde art in general is it can be really intellectually stimulating to try to make art that breaks outside of those bonds. But it's also very hard to do in any way that compels anyone except the person making it, which doesn't make it any less valuable. It's just you kind of are dealing with a more limited audience at that point. If you're like, yo, I've made some really like interesting out there choices. And someone's like, I don't care about this story now. And you're like, fuck, I played myself. (laughs) Plus plus with comics, you're dealing with sort of a minority of a minority when you're coming to like, doing anything sort of avant-garde because you have to you're talking about people who are into comics and then are into it to such a degree that they could understand the way that you're breaking out of the medium which i don't think like even artists who have like worked their whole lives in the medium necessarily have like a like great great understanding of how everything works yeah i mean there's like oh you go on gareth so would you say you're an avant-garde comic book writer and like what what makes your stuff avant-garde specifically uh no i wouldn't i mean i i think my stuff is like pretty um i don't know it's mostly kind of genre stuff um my my, i'm more like uh um my my sort of references are more like from films so it's more like um my stuff's more like kind of bergman or Fassbender, or um, Zulofsky, like people like that who are doing like kind of melodrama, or when they're working in genre, it's kind of from a perspective of like focusing on the sort of more emotional aspects. Like for me, for me, my main focus in comics is like creating situations where the characters can be in like a state of hysteria. I'm very interested in. in exploring like extreme emotions and because i think that's really um 
useful the medium is really useful for that and then just sort of personally i've always i've always been kind of interested in that interested interested in that because i'm i'm fairly i'm fairly reserved personally but i so i'm kind of always very interested in like directness and sort of um emotional breakdowns and emotional situations and sort of emotional extremes so i so i would say my art is kind of focused on create working in like extremes um especially sort of emotional ones and most of my like style choices are about like the um i'm more concerned with the emotion of a scene rather than the reality of it so i don't necessarily care about like creating a photorealist um page to page consistency like if i need a panel to be in a different style than a previous panel i feel fine doing that if it's like jibes with the emotion of the thing cool yes so yeah so what are you uh, i know you've just uh finished a, a run on a book was that uh goro was that leopard i can't remember uh goro yeah goro, leopard right. was the one i did before goro um, right. Though I am kind of printing leopard, uh, reprinting leopard, or I'm putting it in print for the first time uh, as I've been finishing up Goro, so it's kind of coming into print for the first time. But Goro is the most recent thing that I've finished. So, so tell me about them. Like, what, what's the what's the pitch for those two? Uh, well, Goro is kind of my love letter to like sort of late night um, '80s. Um, melodrama like soap opera stuff like dynasty dallas or telenovela stuff um it's about a it's about a assassin that's sent to kill like the matriarch of this uh wealthy family in america and um it's kind of about more than that but ostensibly it's uh sort of a family cannibalizing itself and um lots of sort of soap opery moments of like shocking reveals and characters like uh storming out of rooms and saying terrible things to each other um it's that kind of nice. comic <laughs> cool. the leopard is a slasher comic it's my uh it's uh basically my love of giallos and slashers and stuff like that yeah, the uh, the back of uh, the print version of the first uh, book for for leopard just says horror on the back just like a little tag on the bottom. And it's like, wow, I, having having read it when you were putting it out um, digitally, uh, it I just thought that was really funny to see that wasn't on the digital one. So I'm like, that's, that's a little <laughs> bit of an understatement. Okay. <laughs> Lest there be any confusion. <laughs> like, I don't want you to be, this one isn't, you know, it's a bit, you're going to get freaked. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's also uh, worth, oh, you go on. Oh, no, I was just going to say I have to um, mark those things for (laughs) especially kids at conventions. Yeah. Just stay away from my table in general is probably a good move. There is also, like, we uh, we don't even have to necessarily name names. There there is a rash of some fairly bad criticism, which seems to fail, like, uh, so obviously there's a lot of different critical schools and one that I – find at least the most generally useful there are ones that are more specifically useful to different circumstances is Goethe's critical questions and sometimes the notion of 
the notion of those and the fact that the very first one to Goethe is what exactly is the object I am critiquing? A lot of people skip that one. They're just like, well, it's a comic, so I think it should be a little bit lighthearted and uh, there should be superheroes. And this says neither. So it's shit. And you're like, what? And they're like, no, I disagree. Comics should only be in black and white and be about how people in their 20s are sad. And this is not that. So it's bad. <laughs> you're like, do you do you like art or do you do you because it sounds like you actually hate art. And likewise, we're running into rashes of, say, even in specifically horror um, people who seem to not understand the modality of horror or that something in horror gets invoked specifically because it is bad and the audience is supposed to spurn it. And they're like, I'm seeing it here and you put it on there. So you are as bad as the thing that you just depicted. And you're like, no, the point is that it's bad. And they're like, no, no, but you depicted it. You are now bad. And you're like, I mean, if I do it really poorly and you don't, like grasp what I'm trying to say, then I can follow that. But I don't, do you think the monster in monster movies is good and you should like them? Because if so, I don't think you understand them well. And you're like, no, I understand them quite well. I am a critic, even though I'm not very smart. And I think that you are bad now. Um, yeah, but Linda, do you, do you know that we now have a elevated horror? <laughs> so it's like, uh, one uh, film a year gets to be um, lets to be the like elevated horror. It's a bit like the, that short story, The Lottery. We just pick one, and that's our elevated <laughs> horror for the year. What's insane last is year like... it was um, what was that the Hereditary? Uh, yes, yeah. Last year was Hereditary. Uh, it used to be um, oh crap! What are some others? Um, the oh, Babadook uh, got that, even yeah, though it's Babadook, not even yeah. all that much of a horror. I mean, it is it falls within the domain of That's horror, but it's more unlike. But... Yeah, you. Well, to be fair, you're British, so you really hate <laughs> chimney sweeps. So <laughs> That's true. That chimney, su- that chimney sweep ass motherfucker. Get yeah. out of here, you chimney cricket. He needs to know his place in the social hierarchy, okay? He can't just come into nice people's houses unless he's <laughs> been bidden. He has to dance in front of them or on top of them, singing his little cockney songs, say a cute rhyme, and then get back to sweeping. Yeah, they should not be writing books. <laughs> That's, they, they shouldn't know how to read. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, and what's wild about that to me is that, like, post-horror is a term that had been used in, like, horror-critical and horror-art spaces for a bit to describe a kind of an amorphous space within horror because something like um uh beyond the void uh like the the film beyond the void where it's it's kind of horror but also kind of not really it's like okay well that catches it the same way that like post black metal catches something like death heaven where you're like it's black metal but it's also not black metal so i don't want to call it that but i don't want to call it anything else because that would erase this connection that's clearly there but prior to the dumbass elevated horror thing there wasn't the sense of it being better it was just like oh here's something that takes one scoop of horror and then one scoop of some other thing and makes a new thing yeah um personal shopper by olivia Osseus was one i watched uh, i think last weekend and that was clearly had a ton of elements of horror it was at some points a haunted house story, 
but it was also a murder mystery and just a 20-something attractive person being sad story. I think and, um, what's wonderful is the terms people who like really bad, boring art come up with to justify liking a handful of not boring things. <laughs> well, um, well, we ran into that with uh, Suspiria, the Suspiria remake. Oh, God. Where all the like non-horror people like talked about it as being like this like amazing like horror film and like they were all disturbed and like vomit and like shaking and vomiting and then like all that like actual people who love horror watched it and were like this is too long and it kind of sucks i mean i thought it was i thought it was good but i and i I liked that it wasn't just suspiria again because that I'm not interested. Like I own Suspiria. I don't need that. <laughs> it's, it just sits on my shelf. I don't need to buy two copies of that. But yeah, uh, yeah. I think anyone who went in was like, "This is just straight up better." And finally, ju- it's like, just, just, "Just shut up. Just admit that you don't like horror." Like, well, it's, even- it's, it's the idea that well, what Suspiria was missing was a huge backstory that we went into and explained the Biter Meinhof complex and like. Uh, we gave these uh, like every character like we gave like their their motivation and their this like s- huge story sprawling backwards into like World War Two and all all the stuff that was just kind of like um kind of hinted at in the other. What if we like made it all explicit and took like four hours to explain it all? Like that's uh people and people were like yes that's that's exactly what I want in a horror movie. I'm like <laughs> no. No, no, not really. That's not that's not what makes that's not how a good horror movie happens. You don't want you want less explained, not more like, explained. I think I think it only I think it worked for me the way that it did because like I can't subtract that I've seen Suspiria like forty fucking times. So the main beats were all in my head, so I was basically just watching it for what's different and then I was like, Oh, okay, that's okay. Yeah, I really don't get how someone could have not seen it and felt that the centrality of the story isn't uh, insane witch ballet. <laughs> and they're like, no, I want other things. Be like, no, that's that's why I'm probably if I rewatch the new one, it'll just be to show it to someone. Meanwhile, I'll just rewatch Suspiria. Like, oh, I'm bored and I got an hour and forty minutes. Let's watch Suspiria. <laughs> like. Well, it's uh, it's like when they remade um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre the first oh, time. Oh, Jesus Christ! Yeah, they made, they made it like twice as long, and then they got rid of like kind of everything that worked in the first part. Like, got well, rid of uh, the the guy in the wheelchair. Like, completely got rid of him. And he's I I watched I watched the original on a loop for twenty four hours when I was trying to uh, get in the mode for the last uh, part of Leopard. And like it never got old because it's like so perfectly paced and like that that character is so integral to like the drama of everything and how it kicks off. And then so for the remake, when they got rid of him and then it just kind of like uh, it just kind of like falls apart as a movie. Yeah. And it's like, of course, you need two hours for this because you just didn't know what you were doing anymore. It, uh, so, so that strikes at the, the brief, the brief moments in every episode of our podcast where I have to say something brainy to justify my existence. Um, so one, uh, a brief, uh, like critical definition of the term melodrama for people that are listening that aren't big into like 
philosophy and literary theory and literary criticism and all that is that it gets bandied about more commonly as like a derogatory term of saying like this story is shit and it's too like edgy and meh, so yeah, I'm going to call it melodrama, but it's actually a much, much more boring term than, than that. It's a uh, Greek term goes back to Greek tragedy and it uh, pretty literally is the notion of taking either a thought or a, uh, an emotion and embodying it into a dramatic or dramaturgical context. So it's like a really, it means almost nothing in a literary critical sense aside from that initial push of I'm going to dramatize some, uh, some event to the point where like the philosopher Deleuze riffs on the notion of melodrama as uh, what makes ideas emerge into actions in reality is the dramatization of thought and uh, which is the whole stream of like, don't poison your brain with all nonsense because at some point the ironic becomes the sincere and you're just a jackass. Now you're just being racist. Um, but uh, more specifically, that became a generally useful term for the Greeks uh, and then in post-Grecian literary criticism to refer to basically Grecian-style drama, where the emotions are high in order to really either drive home a point as hard as possible or eventually just because it became an aesthetic feeling. Like, uh, like you were mentioning, Bergman deals in melodrama a lot, and I don't think anyone who's watched Bergman would describe his films as being like uh bad or overly emotional or some like dumb thing like that any of the negative connotations we have for melodrama don't really feel at place with say persona or through glass darkly or hour of the wolf like they're they're resplendent and striking and disturbing films and are very obviously grecian in style and affect hence being melodrama and uh, a big, a big fan of this, a big proponent of it, ironically, was a very young Nietzsche, who earlier in his life was both a, a student of the classics. Um, he developed his split of the Apollonian and the Dionysian due to studying um, Grecian culture and Grecian uh, theater and drama specifically. Hence, also, I got that weird fixation on Dionysus that drove his entire life, uh, and a big thing that he pulled out of there, which ties both to Dionysus being the god of theater and thus the god of melodrama, uh, is, and also the god of Bacchanalian chaos, is that, like, <laughs> stories don't work, or, or drama, like artistic drama especially, doesn't work without that kind of chaotic either spark in the more mild, subtle stories of the thing that goes wrong that now the rest of the story will address. Or in more... Uh, this is kind of the thing that defines like pulp or um, early genre stuff or like the B movie aesthetic is that sp the dancing star, the like spark of insanity, the, the Dionysian or Bacchanalian impulse must be continuously refreshed. It can never stop. It can never slow down. Like, uh, and that's one thing that I like that you stripe throughout both your art and your, um, the stories of uh, Leopard and Goro. And it feels quite fitting then that one of your more recent projects is an adaptation of the, uh, the Bacchae uh, <laughs> by, by Euripides, which is also a 
batshit insane play. Like, when, like, I guarantee someone will read this and think that maybe you are inventing some of the events here, and then, uh, will look up on Wikipedia the Bakai and read that it begins with a dude getting beheaded. <laughs> like, it's just, it, I don't know what happened to Euripides, because he wasn't normally that off the wall, but then something happened and he was like, let's write some fucking lit shit right now. <laughs> Yeah, I can't. Uh, I can't wait to get to the part of the play with the just like really, really insane stuff. But yeah, like that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's it. That's 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 gonna be a really fun one. It's like when people knock Titus Andronicus, uh, the the Shakespeare play, even though dudes get hacked up and then cannibalized like fucking crazy in that. It's metal <laughs> as fuck. You're like, oh well, it's not as good as as Hamlet. It's like, shut up. How many Hamlets do you need? Sometimes I want Shakespeare wrote a fucking giallo play. That's crazy. <laughs> That's fucking tight. I've I've actually been reading um Ann, Ann Carson's collection of um uh like four it's like the four tragedies of Euripides and it's all focused on more like the tragedies. Yeah. And um the uh the her adaption or her uh, translation of uh his Hercules play is that's fucking insane yeah where because he like you know he comes home from like you know going to hades and like you know fucking around in the underworld comes back up and the gods <laughs> just like take everything from him and he just like and then the, there's this last part of the, the last part of the play is just him like folding in on himself and like the like dealing with this like the impossible weight of everything that they've made him do and they've done to his life after all of these years of struggle that he's like built up to just to come home and just like tear it all down. Uh, yeah. Euripides is fucking awesome. Uh, as fuck. yeah. It's also, it's also worth noting that, uh, Ann Carson is another person where if, uh, if you don't like them and you're listening to this podcast, fuck off. <laughs> like Ann Carson's fucking amazing. Yeah, she's, and also is a, an, an incredible a... translator too. Like that's um, she's not just a great poet, but her uh, like a major supplement to her income is she's actually spearheaded a lot of uh, translation projects and uh, like pre- like literary literary preservation projects. And it's just oh, so fucking good. She she's doing the good work. Mm-hmm. So one of the things we asked you to do before you came on the, the pod was recommend a couple of songs and you did and they are good as fuck and they suit what we're talking about really well uh, so the first one i was going to play is uh, skepticism by silent wings do you want to just introduce them to people who have maybe haven't heard these guys um i well you guys asked for like i said you guys asked for uh music that was like heavy as fuck and so i was mm-hmm. going through my brain trying to think of like what that meant and for me that was like the sort of crunching like plotting like doom of uh skepticism like they're for me like them and like mournful congregation and uh oh those are probably my two like that i think of most when i think of kind of like a dirgy funeral doom like style it's just like sits on you yeah, Mournful oh. Congregation's last one was amazing. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> that was so good. 
That was uh, the something of Incubus, right? I the... think so, yeah. Um, yeah, I remember putting that one on, and I would just sit on my porch and get so fucking sad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I listened to that while uh, in a supermarket. That's, that's that must have normal. been a surreal experience. <laughs> yeah, really, really good experience. Um, Gave a certain gravitas to the corn. Yeah. corn it wasn't and... even a good supermarket. It was like a really discount budget one where the, all the food is Polish. <laughs> nice. You get like huge jars of like pickled, disgusting vegetables that like we... no one could possibly eat. Well, we 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 live in America, Gareth. So if we want to go to a Polish supermarket, we have to go out of our way. There, are, those are hard to find. Instead, we get that white bread shit fucking everywhere. You can't go someplace without like, what's that? Oh, it's a Nabisco fucking something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So this is skepticism by Silent Wings. It's seven minutes long. It's going to break your speakers, so yeah, turn it all the way up. Just <laughs> just go for it. You only live once. We've only got a few, maybe 20 years left of human civilization before the lights go out for good. And, you know, you know hearing's not going to be around forever, so just turn this really, really far up. <laughs>
Skepticism by Silent Wings. Um, we're still here with Sarah Horrocks, comic book author, uh, <coughs> Bon Vivant, um, <laughs> Gourmand, perhaps. Do you eat comic books? You could. Delatante. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen I've seen I've seen people who eat them. I've heard it's not a pleasing experience. Is that like it's a thing? Do people film themselves eating comic books? On yeah, YouTube? well, people they should. That could be film my, themselves be doing I, all sorts of in. stupid things. Yeah, well, I saw um, the critic uh, Matt Seneca like hated some comic years and years ago, or he hated or like it. I don't remember, but he like uh, <laughs> cut up a comic and then like smoked it, and I guess that and it's very dumb because oh. it's very a lot of toxic shit in there. Well, he had to like it at least a little bit to let it into his body like that. You don't even even if you. I mean, I'm not saying he didn't also hate it. I'm just saying it had to had to have been speckled. <laughs> Most things I don't hate, I don't let into my body. I wouldn't let Donald Trump into my body. That's that's insane to me. I would never do that. That's unacceptable. Wait, you even like bore <laughs> Donald Trump? I wouldn't bore <laughs> Donald Trump. No, I'd wow. cut him up. I'd cut him up little tiny pieces. Yeah, but <laughs> boop, 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 when boop. you when you like bore something. Or eat it, as people often say. Uh, you like you ingest it. You you gain your energy and you turn well, I, it into shit. So it's well, like a very like well, boring experience. Boring specifically, I'd have to eat him whole, like a snake or a duck would eat something. Yeah, um, you do that. I'm closer to a duck than a snake, so it'd be like how a duck would eat a big man duck. <laughs> a man-sized duck would eat Donald Trump. Probably like a hot dog or some bread, um, but no, I wouldn't actually. Uh, I wouldn't actually bore him. I would pay someone to bore him, though. Turn him into shit, and then gently I would, put. <clears throat> I'd bore him like like a snake, like an anaconda, like you know, <clears throat> just like expand and just like sit there for days. With my eyes roll back in the head, and he's like really slowly digests. Rask it like rap. this really orange shit. Yeah, I think so. yeah, that'd be oh yeah, that'd be gross. It'd probably come out in like my pores and stuff. It, yeah, yeah, I'm you'd gonna wrap your uh, you'd wrap your him. you'd wrap your really long body around him and then tense up a whole lot to break all of his bones bit by bit. <laughs> totally, Gareth is very long, very <laughs> very long. <laughs> I'm just gonna edit out that bit and send it to girls. <laughs> He's not. <laughs> and, uh... <laughs> Hey, ladies, what's up? Yeah, <laughs> I have a testimony from someone who says it's very long. And, uh, anyway, uh, we're going to have some more music in a little while. And I'm so stoked on this band, by the way. I, I oh, yeah. listened to them years ago and totally forgot they exist and then realized it in this moment of, like, amnesis or whatever it's called. I, I, I was it. like, how do, how does Gareth legit not know these people? Like, <laughs> I, I was like, I we both listen to weird experimental ago. stuff. Like, there's you. The, ironically, despite being like one of the biggest underground bands of their, or despite being like very underground, they're also like one of the first things you run into when you're like, I want some weird out there underground guitar stuff, and they're like that band, that one, <laughs> this specific one, always this one. I, I like went through my Japanese like, oh, like, days, like oh, you like the Velvet Underground? Ago. Oh, that's cute. Then... <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we'll discuss those guys later. But yes. uh, so I want to talk about your new project because that has fucking Mecha in it. Yeah. Oh yes. <laughs> like Mecha is almost as cool as uh, Vorin and uh, 
probably some other stuff, but mechas are <laughs> fucking cool. So let's talk about some uh, mecha. So Gundam is like a big uh, like touchstone for you, right? Uh, yeah, well, for I, once I decided I wanted to make a mech comic, I knew I needed to like uh, kind of absorb the sort of history of it and see like what stuff jived with me and like what like um, you know how things worked within the genre and then decide like how would I wanted to do like fit with that. Um, so like. I, I mean, I'd seen, I think before last year, I had seen, like, Endless Waltz and, um, like, two or three other Gundam series, but I hadn't, I'd never gone back and done, like, the whole UC Universe stuff. And um, so last year, my project was to do the Gundam UC Universe. So last year, I I did. I watched <laughs> I watched everything in the Universal, Universal Century uh, Gundam stuff and then I've seen um, I think I've now seen almost everything except for like the really really bad stuff um, but I think I've seen all of the Tamino stuff except for I quit on Victory Gundam that was the only one I couldn't uh, keep with because I thought it, it kind of sucked. It, it does suck a lot yeah it's pretty um, yeah the more recent Gundam seem to have gotten really scattershot where every now and again you get like the um the Gundam Thunderbolt uh OVAs which is fucking amazing like you're like the, where did the manga for that is even better than the anime yeah. like it's amazing well i just i loved the um the both the scoring and the fluidity that they brought to the OVA cuz i was like i'm not sure how they're going to handle something that says like textual as mm. as the manga when they were like, no, we're gonna shoot kind of in a different direction. We're gonna make it really like jazzy and vibrant and like full of life. And I was like, oh shit! And then they're like, yeah, we have um, it wasn't like it was like Gundam Unicorn or something. I'm like, this mm. this is kind of not great. This is um, oh, I, I liked I liked uh, Unicorn Gundam. I didn't like the new uh little side movie they did like just recently, but I liked the um, the series, the, um, yeah, the, that, the little mini series. Yeah. Um, cause I, I thought it really kind of wrapped up a lot of the themes of the universal century really well. And, um, yeah. And I, I and I think it's also has some of the, like the craziest, like mech, like mech fights of like modern, uh, sort of modern Gundam stuff. It is very um, strange though, how they seem to have been like, there was there was that hot streak period from like maybe seventy eight to sometime in the mid nineties where they they had duds but they were few and far between compared to the successes to or even by the end of Double Zeta it goes from being like this is fucking annoying to like this is kind of tight it's not as tight as Zeta but it's it's more tight than I thought it was when <laughs> I initially started. I, then, I have to like package those two together, but I mean, of the two, like I, the back half of uh, Double Zeta is like to me like the most like depressing and like devastating yeah. of like the whole maybe of like arc. all of them. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> it has the craziest like colony drop of the whole Gundam's like series. I think. Then they then they decided to give us um, what was it Turn A. 
The one where it yeah. was like, God, that fuck. I liked it because it was fan service made for me specifically, but also I was smart enough to go like, this is bad. <laughs> like, this is like getting a hand job in a movie theater. This is not something you dream of or aspire to. But in the, in the moment, you're like, okay, yeah, yeah. And then afterwards, you're like, I feel a little weird now. <laughs> I think they did um, 08 after that. Um, I think so. Which I think 08 is really good. Yeah. I think for, for me, this stuff that doesn't um, – I haven't – well, I haven't seen – uh, age yet or um, like another one sort of in that era but I feel like um, I don't know I, I think I feel like what basically we're talking about is kind of the uh, sort of decline of Tamino and sort of reconciling with that because I think Tamino's relationship to Gundam is the same as like George Lucas to Star Wars where yeah. it's like you kind of have to as they as they sort of like get more sort of scattered with their interests in it, uh, and then sort of the desire to still tell most more stories with that, like how do you negotiate that? Um, I think there's a I think there was a period where they were still kind of I still think they were kind of f- not necessarily floundering, but I think that they're still sort of struggling for a kind of post Tamino vision of Gundam that's like sort of concrete, and so that's why. It's still pretty scattershot, but I mean, at the end of the day, I think like even the worst Gundam is probably better than most other mech shows. Yeah, I mean, outside I, there, there are a handful that like. So there's like Gunbuster, which is like an all-time mm. great, and there's Ixion, which is another like all-time great. Which I think Tamino worked on Ixion, though. So I'm are you talking not... about Idian? Idian, yes, that's yeah, it. yeah. Yeah, he was uh, he was the main guy who created that. He did that after the 079 and before the movies came out. So which yeah, sort of restarted. It's not surprising that it is an all-time great. And then obviously there's like as much as you can count Evangelion because it does technically have mechs even though it's mm. not really about mechs at all. The mechs are there, but it's not really a mech show. Um but, but it, yeah, it, it's deeply, deeply, deeply indebted to the like all of that stuff. Like, I mean, you oh, can yeah. see like Ano is making is kind of playing with like Zeta Gundam, Z Z Gundam. He's yeah. playing with like all the Go Nagai, uh, Kenny Shikawa stuff. Like, he's it, definitely in that same f- field. And I mean, that's what he came up through, yeah. like dealing with that stuff. It. it reminds me, I mean, we brought this up a million times on the show, because like like any rational, decent human being, Gareth and I both love Evangelion. Evangelion mm. is his wife. Mm. Evangelion is wife. Um, we I'm, love... I'm seriously thinking about doing a spin-off show where, like, when it comes out on Netflix, just going through every single episode and narrating them. No, <laughs> commentary to every single yeah. Evangelion. That was probably the probably one of the most formative things for me growing up oh, was definitely. seeing that. Same. Yeah, I, I saw like, uh, stay up till two a.m. on a Thursday to watch Evangelion, and I did it. There I was used to uh, buy it on like some shitty animes to get there too. <laughs> I used to buy it on expensive VHSs. Back in the there's day. a there's That's a, a there's a period where um, there was a I think it may have been um, HBO when it was like in the early '90s, and they're like just bringing. 
uh, a lot of anime over to America, or like a handful. And it was this block where it was Robotech, Voltron, Dragon Ball, Dragon Ball Z, Evangelion every week and i was like like that shit blew my mind and then they would every now and again play akira (laughs) and it's just like (laughs) and then later i got older and they were like hey you want to look at this it's called rironi kenshin and i was like why is this whack i thought anime was tight why is this whack (laughs) this sucks though oh it's so crazy like um because like so when i was growing up like the version of that was um the sci-fi channel was would show like Vampire Hunter D, um, Akira, uh, like that's Wicked City, Demon City Shinjuku, like stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And so, like, like you real late at night. Well, and sometimes, sometimes they'd show it like during the morning. So you, that that I think that my introduction to anime was looking for like Saturday morning cartoons and seeing somebody get cut in half in Vampire Hunter D. <laughs> And I was like, wow, this is the real shit. <laughs> You're um, like, oh, I'm tuning in here next week, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, that's you such got a, me. Like, that, that era of uh, anime where, like, it's, like, ultra-violent, sexualized, and, like, people, like, the dubs were all, like, adding as many curse words as possible, and the trailers were all with the metal music. You compare oh, that yeah. to the way, like, anime fandom is now, which is, like, kind of, like, weird, furry stand fan <laughs> thing. And it's so bizarre. You're like, it's the same thing, but now like it's like I think when it started it was it was almost more connected with like metal and like punk stuff and like now it's more just nerd stuff. Yeah. No, I um it's I went through a, a long period. This will see if this sounds familiar to either of the two of you. Um, I went through a long period where I sort of turned my nose up at anime and manga because I associated it so much with like the dumb weeb trash that I went to middle and high school with. So I was like, nah, that's garbage and I'm brain and smart and shit. So no, I, the only dumb thing I like is really fucking horseshit, stupid, heavy metal and punk. Aside from that though, no, nah, I'm reading literature. You've used stupid idiots. And so like, you know, I'm like 15 or something and I'm reading Ulysses and I'm reading Moby Dick and shit. And someone's like, do you want to read this manga? It's called, um, my sister's hot. And I'm like, fuck you. <laughs> fuck you. <laughs> and then, uh, I got to a point where, you know, I was getting really into comics as well. Um, like more seriously getting into comics. Cause I grew up I, I grew up as a boy in the 90s, so I had a shitload of comics growing up. Like, it's, <laughs> like, uh, like we kind of make fun of him now, but, like, anyone who is there knows how revolutionary Liefeld was when he first mm. came along. Because, mm. like, at last it was, like, comics where you're like, I'm looking at the art. I just realized these things have art. Like, <laughs> I, somehow, I never put that together before now. And they're, like, mostly art now that I'm looking at them. Um, but uh, I came across uh, a Grant Morrison essay where, I mean, obviously I'd, you know, run into, like, how Frank Miller was, like, yeah, my, like, number one influence is, like, Jack Kirby or something. Like, some obvious, like, yeah, no shit, they're fucking great. And then number two, it's manga artists. And then running into Alan Moore going like, yeah, I don't read a lot of Western comics anymore. I read a couple like weird Danish and uh, Dutch and French comics. And then a lot of manga because those guys are great. And then it was an essay from Grant Morrison who brought up that there's a lot of um, cultural chauvinism 
and uh, implicit racism that goes into manga is where these dumb, shitty ideas go, and comics is where the good, brainy ideas go, because, you know, obviously, there are just as many dumb, useless ideas in Western comics as there are in manga, and there's just as many uh, smart things. It's just we look at an aesthetic and put it into this. And I was like, okay, that's a fair point, Grant. Against my better judgment, I'm going to start reading some manga. Uh, and then found out that shit is fire. And also, sometimes it's dumb in the good way. Like, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Gareth, what's what's that anime that we were talking about? Goblin Slayer. That's oh, the one. Oh, yeah. Dumb in the best, most glorious way possible. I've Horses heard good things about that. I haven't watched it yet. Yeah, it's, it's so bad, but so it's, wonderful. It's really horribly drawn. It's barely <laughs> animated, except I, when they go crazy and decide to like, animate the fuck out of everything. It, it reminds me of how people who should know better try to tell me um, that Berserk is smart whatsoever. And I'm like, one, no, it's not. Two, you know that's <laughs> not why we're there. I'm not reading or watching Berserk because I think it's smart. I do it because that dude is named the Black Swordsman Guts, and he has a <laughs> Hellblade, and he has to fight a chromed-up skeleton. <laughs> well, that, that's uh, I think that's kind of like something that ends up being a difference between um, <laughs> right now between like sort of Japanese comics and then like American <laughs> comics. A lot of times, to do that kind of thing in American comics, people feel like they have to kind of um wink at the audience they can't just like be sincere about it yeah whereas where when all that to pull something like that off it's all about sincerity like and that's yeah i I think that's one of the big differences between said that i still follow a lot of um mainstream stuff because i'm a piece of shit and also i think it's a type um but like grant morrison's current run on on green lantern feels so successful because he doesn't wink at all. He's just like, I don't need to wink. If you can't tell that this shit is absurd and over the top and fun, you're stupid. And I don't want you reading my book. Like, I'm Grant fucking Morrison. I've earned my stripes. Fuck off. Um, and I'm going to team up with this artist who draws like an insane person. Like, throwaway frames are given, like, deep crenellation. And I'm like, you're going to kill your wrist, man. And he's like, I don't care a minute for the game. And I'm like, thank you, Liam Sharp. Thank you. Um... Yeah, and they're telling this insane fucking soap opera about space cops. Um, and then, you know, looking back over at, like, Scott Snyder's recent stuff, you'll have these streaks of, like, oh, that's a really great, fun, melodramatic idea that fits in the idiom. And then it'll be like, by the way, I'm writing a comic book. And I'm like, Scott, Scott? And he's like, just wanted you to remember that. Be like, Scott, I know what I'm holding. I know what <laughs> I have in my hand. There are too many pictures. Like, the Bat Guy isn't going to be in a normal book. No one would write a regular book for adults about Batman. That's really stupid. <laughs> I mean, but I think that kind of thing happens on, like, the sort of indie comic scene, too. Yeah. Yeah. They, if anything, they can be a bit more, like, cloyingly meta with it sometimes because of that kind of latent shame of, oh, I'm making a comic. Yeah. That, should be writing a real a novel like a normal person, but oh. <laughs> well, no. The people who write indie comics and feel ashamed want to be writing for McSweeney's. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it's it's the same thing. I mean, it's not any different than like sort of, uh, in, like indie horror directors who think that they're sort of they can't just like sort of treat treat something with like the 
uh, sincerity deserves. They, yeah. they feel like they've always got to, it's always got to be, have some sort of like meta, meta, meta hook to it. And it's got to like have something extra to it. When the reason like stuff like endures, like exploitation stuff endures is because people were being dead serious about it. Cause they're coming from like, you know, marginalized <laughs> perspectives most of the time. And they're, do- and they're doing stuff like the best that they can. And that's what creates these weird spaces where stuff that gets wedged in your brain for forever, uh, that's where they happen, is this area that's kind of imperfect, but it's genuine. Yeah. It's yeah, like that, um, that one everyone loved that I hated. It Follows. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that one? I, everyone mm-hmm. loved that. But it, it, was, it seemed really ashamed that it was a horror movie. Because it the, had a spooky premise where like a person just walks at you and they don't stop and you've got to get away from them. That's spooky. That, well, the, the, I love the intro to that movie. Like the very first scene before they explain all the rules where she just kind of like yeah. runs out of a house and you're trying to figure out what's going on. Like hmm. if they had been able to sort of like keep that going for a full movie, that would have been so much cooler. Yeah, I think there were a so lot of grains in it that worked ironically the that was one where um some of the the worst thing a film can be is a set of really pretty postcards that were um foolishly animated like um what is it uh only god forgives is probably the best example of some great postcards that were for some reason turned into a three-hour film um (laughs) like like refin i you can't direct i don't know what's wrong with you you need to just write a concept there's, these are interesting concepts and hand it to someone who knows how to direct because you're apparently completely incompetent. Um, but <laughs> see, that's, that's why I like Refn because he's so like <laughs> insane. Like the, the, the that's so you're fair. just like, you're watching such a indulgent mess and it's, you're like, the question is, it isn't necessarily why he thinks that he should be making <laughs> this, but how somebody decided to like, bank <laughs> all of these pro- things constantly. <laughs> what happened in the producer's mind? <laughs> Like, does this he, man- like, he blackmailing this guy? <laughs> he just has, like, weird ideas to make five-hour-long movies to just, like, a close-up of a neon light. And then someone drives a truck full of money at him and says, here, cast all of Hollywood in it. I gotta be honest, I did watch, I was transfixed by Only God Forgives for the entire time it was on screen. Because it, w- it reminded me of, um, and I was going to, so the point I was going to make about it follows there was that it follows the soundtrack and the imagery drove it in a way that anyone talking subtracted from. Like <laughs> if you tune out all the dialogue, like you watch it, like find a way to mute it and play it soundtrack on a stereo really loud and uh, don't turn on subtitles. The movie winds up being great because the framing and the pacing of it is handled really well. The way that the soundtrack, um, which is, like a really fundamental bit of horror, like the way sound and sound design plays with your sense of tension and space. Um, really fantastic disaster piece did a great soundtrack for it. Mm. Um, it's just every time they talked, it was stupid as shit, um, <laughs> which is, you know, a big problem with a lot of things. It wasn't the tight kind of stupid, which then cuts back to like uh, what's oddly compelling first as irony and then his sincerity was someone like Refn or probably the ultimate. We refer to like the room as the ultimate B movie. And I think that's stupid. The ultimate B movie is Zardoz. There's nothing better than Zardoz, literally nothing. Anyone who's seen Zardoz knows exactly what I mean. And there's no point explaining Zardoz to anyone aside from track it down and watch it immediately. 
literally it's probably my second favorite film because the first time you watch it you're like who the fuck let this happen (laughs) who the fuck said this was they looked at the final edit and they were like release it though (laughs) yeah this is gonna be next star wars and then (laughs) but after you laugh at it a lot your first time you go back to and it's exactly the point you're bringing up sarah is that like john borman isn't joking at any point during that movie. And the fact that he's totally sincere and made this gobstoppingly crazy sci-fi movie, um, suddenly it sinks in like this is actually more wild a science fiction film than we'd been getting from people who were promising us like big epics. It's the same reason why people legitimately fell in love with Jupiter Ascending specifically and the Wachowski sisters' whole ouvoir, uh, in general is because Mm. they sincerely love sci-fi like Mm. they they're like we accidentally made a kind of brainy movie with the matrix that was not really intentional what was (laughs) intentional was it being fucking crazy (laughs) yeah they they just wanted to write a love letter to all the the anime they've been watching and also (laughs) the invisibles oh well yeah (laughs) well we can't actually say that because uh court action um means that they've um Grant Morrison no longer believes that they ripped off the Invisibles horribly, <laughs> just constantly in every single scene, in every single way. And very, very literally went, what if the Invisibles happened in the same universe as Ghost in the Shell? <laughs> <laughs> Which, to be fair, is a fucking tight premise. So, like, yeah, I don't fault premise. them at all. That's, That's, yeah. <laughs> poor, poor Grant Morrison. He wanted so badly to have Mark Millar's career and. Mark Millar wanted so badly to be Grant Morrison. <laughs> and instead, we got the world in which the popular one is the one who really needs to go to therapy. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, Grant Morrison's got a really short end of the stick in terms of film adaptations. Like, oh, yeah. Alan Moore doesn't want anyone to make a film adaptation, and they've made all of them. <laughs> Grant Morrison's only adaptation. Awesome, no matter what he does. <laughs> Morrison wants anything he's made to be adapted so badly. <laughs> and the only thing he's been adapted is Happy. It's it terrible. Well, man, it wasn't terrible. It just okay, it's not, is. It's, it's, it's not okay. up to his standard. No, yeah, it's, it's not. Okay but I'm it. saying it's not terrible. It's just, it's fine, which is uh, the choice of that. <laughs> Why would anyone go, you know what's the most ad- adaptable that I think we could really make work? The one where a normal cop hangs out with uh, a flying purple donkey. <laughs> yeah, that's the one. Yeah, yeah. Just I feel like they Because we need to... Yeah, Hollywood just seems to hate that guy. Maybe they got pissed off with him for suing the Wachowskis. Maybe he like like burned his Hollywood like, cred with that. In, in another universe, um, five, ten years ago, I would have said that a Seven Soldiers of Victory miniseries on Netflix or AMC would be fucking amazing. But now I've learned my lesson that uh, <laughs> Netflix is the devil and Prestige TV sucks balls. Hmm. So just... if um, if the guy who did Legion did it. Oh, yeah, that'd be lit. That, yeah, yeah, that'd be that fucking would amazing. be just a hand reaching out of TV. And just jacking me off, and it would be <laughs> yeah, that shit would be scene. amazing. That would, yeah, that, um, he that guy can basically do no wrong. But I, um, I know to, to to jump erratically back on back onto the rails. Um, I noticed when I was going um, first, it was when I was reading Bacchus, the uh, big solo ish comic by Eddie Campbell, who is most well known 
to most comic readers as being the artist for From Hell, the uh, Alan Moore, um, Jack the Ripper tale. Um, and then when I went back into Goro, I noticed that there was at least a surface similarity with the um, with both your art and lettering with Eddie Campbell. Is that totally incidental? Am I just seeing shit? Is it because I read two things back to back? I think it's more that um, both of us probably read the same European comics. That would make a lot of sense because <laughs> he does cite a lot. Um, thankfully, the the modern collections from from Top Shelf of Bacchus have a lot of notes from him, and he cites a lot of uh, European comics that he was reading at the time. Um, so, and you actually have as a foreword in uh, the Bacchae a note specifically about uh, Andrea Pazienza, and mm. you mentioned a last name of another person, uh, Breccia. Yeah, Alberto Breccia. Yeah. Oh, Breccia. I can't, uh, I don't try to pronounce Italian names. Uh, I'm part Italian. I think it's funny to be racist against Italians. It's always well, well, funny to me. Te- technically, he's Uruguay- Uruguayan, but Argentina claims him. And... Okay, well, then then yeah. it's not funny to do that. And I apologize <laughs> to him. <laughs> Only when it's Italians. <laughs> And, and I and I may I may be mispronouncing it myself because I've I've never I don't think I've talked to very many people uh, in person uh, about <laughs> him. It's mostly been online and in text form. Yeah, he's he is uh, up there with someone like like Mobius though, as like a you know, when you run across it, you're like, oh shit, this is why everyone raves about this guy who who has read him. Because you're like the everything from the little like art and lettering touches to just the the scope of the stories. You're like, oh, it's fucking great. Um, yeah, pretty much. I think pretty much every sort of uh, Western sort of textural inking style can be traced back to him almost. Like, yeah. Because um, well, like if you think you take something like Sin City, uh, Miller was. Uh, looking at like uh, Jose Munoz stuff and he was a student of Breccia and like his style kind of comes from Breccia as well. Like uh, Breccia and Hugo Pratt are kind of like the two there. But I mean, a lot of, a lot of the Italian comics of the seventies, like kind of end up, end up being in that way. So I think, uh... I, I think that's probably where, Campbell and I have crossover as our love of like seventies Italian comics. That would make a lot of sense. Cause he, he's very vocal about that too, is like, cause uh, people obviously have interviewed him a lot of like, how do you have such atypical figures compared to um, all these other people? And you're British and you've never worked for 2080. What? <laughs> um, and you know, him pointing towards those, uh, those European spaces. Um, it, yeah, it's also the same kind of thing that, like, Mike Mignola and um, Kelly, Scott Kelly, the guy mm-hmm. who does the really fucked up Dead Man and uh, Batman. Oh, um, um, uh, Kelly Jones. Yes. Kelly Jones, yeah. Really fucked up looking art, but you're like, oh, God, there's such deep blacks fucking everywhere. Like, <laughs> <clears throat> Yeah, there was a. I saw a thing from Mignola on Twitter um, 
it's only sort of tangentially related, but it's, I thought it was interesting. Um, he was talking, um, someone, some artist was talking about like the notes that they had for, um, drawing Hellboy. And he had commented about how, uh, he had no idea what Hellboy's like palms looked like because he had never had to draw them. Because <laughs> he said, because they, they had like kind of like done for the like notes, they had drawn like kind of a open palm thing of uh, Hellboy's hand. And McNola commented back that he had no idea if that was right or not because in all these years he'd never drawn his palm. <laughs> and like, Which I just thought was you, funny. Haven't you thought about it? And he's like, no, no, no. no. <laughs> I think uh, I think the same thing happened with uh, Jim Lee. I heard when they started making uh, models of his artwork and wanting like three dimensional like like wrap around, yeah, yeah, like he, turnarounds rather. Yeah, that was the first time he had like started to like think of his work <laughs> in three dimensions. Um, which I think I think makes a lot of sense as a comic artist, anyways, because I mean you don't really have a lot of time for that shit. <laughs> It all you can also sort of track a Jim Lee. His, I, his his general art seems to have gone slightly downhill when he thought more three dimensionally. Yeah, because he had like he had at least a very striking two dimensional um, uh, framing of things. There were sometimes like impossible postures, but I think people who fixate, who overly fixate on is this posture this person is holding. Um, physically possible that's really kind of missing the point of comics and also a lot of times when they're saying that what they mean to say is um this comic is made with a misogynistically uh sexualized male gaze which is like that's a valid critique you don't have to dress it in weird other language you can just say like jack off and then draw your comic like that's well, totally fair <laughs> people people have always been uh unnerved by like sort of body distortions in general along yes. erotic lines like i mean uh Chile was the same way like people were really unnerved seeing these kind of floating elongated forms on paintings in front of them and i think we i think that still holds true today i mean that's the stuff i love personally but yeah and uh, it's it's very yeah. it's very both present and striking in your work like that's mm-hmm. i remember like didn't know who you were at all. Neither of us followed each other. I'd not heard your name. And then I saw a friend of mine who also works in comics had uh, retweeted um, in, uh, a tweet you had with some frames from The Leopard and just a link to it. And it was just looking at like some of the some of the art for it. Like there was some like dialogueless panels and some with like the really like jagged organic uh uh lettering like just sort of crawling across the page like a bunch of insects or bugs or something and i was like buying that buying it now (laughs) i was like holy shit people make comics that look like how i want them to look instead of having to like oh yeah no i buy this one because i like you know this kind of thing or someone who knows better looks at my shelf and it's like, why do you have Cerebus comics? And I'm like, well, I mean, they look really good. And also I don't think Dave Sims uses human money. So I don't, <laughs> I don't think he's going to get anything from this. That's, he lives in a shack in the woods. <laughs> he's got gold. He's just probably got, there's gold and shotgun shells. Also, that's I, his currency. ironically, that's one of the few gross motherfuckers I feel fine supporting because literally everyone knows he's crazy. Like, he's not influential in terms of being a thought person. 
Yeah. No one's like, Dave, what do you think of this topic? Because I'm going <laughs> to take that seriously. It's always like... <laughs> oh, have you seen the uh, the description of his new comic? Uh, I'm going to pull this up. LGB, LGBTQ yeah. thing? Yeah. What? Oh, God. I yeah. can't I can't I wait to hear this. how fucking gross and stupid he this is. is. Yeah, it is. Oh, um, it's terrible. Okay. Okay, let me find it. Before he reads that out, did you know that he made recently, like this year, a one shot called League of Extraordinary Cerebi? <laughs> no, I didn't. Was, yeah, go- was he- that another Gustav Dorr uh, like collaboration? I think so. He found <laughs> out that uh, he found out that Alan Moore is making what's supposed to be the last League of Extraordinary Gentlemen comic that's also supposed to close out his comic career for what, like the twelfth time or something. And it's like, well, he keeps making cool shit, so like, I'm not complaining. Yeah, but I, 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 I just want him to free Kevin O'Neill to go back to draw like crazy shit. I don't even know if he can still do it, but I want him to do like uh, martial law, and, uh, you know, Nemesis crazy drawing stuff, not with, more League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Well, the current okay, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen to... is is fucking crazy visually, to be <laughs> fair, because they made they made Harry Potter a twenty foot tall eyeball-covered Antichrist and then cut his head off at the end of the last volume. So it's, it's gotten pretty <laughs> fucking weird. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, he found that out, apparently, and was like, yeah, I'm gonna make a parody of League of Extraordinary Gentlemen starring multiple Cerebi, and I'm gonna unretire the Cerebi comic to do this. And it's like, well, it's not literally 200 pages of all prose misogyny theology <laughs> so i guess it's an improvement <laughs> uh, so do you have okay, that I, I, I have it right here so uh content warning for stupid <laughs> incredible right so this is the lgb lgtbq etc people one shot by dave sim and gustav door uh, now with no fucking reprints, he's putting like the symbols over the squares. Epic length, all in one, twenty-four page issue. Meet the Infernal Realms' most inclusive supergroup, Lesbiana Hombre trademark, gay Chicano female trapped inside the white masculine body she never made. Redwood City, he may look like a tree, but he's actually a mid-sized metropolitan California tourist destination, and excretes his own pine cones. So he's doing the I identify as attack helicopter bit. Brilliant. Uh, borderline Bobby. Amazingly, he changes gender identity every time you refer to her by a different pronoun. Just watch him. You go, girl. Belvedere. Tired of being a stallion centaur, Belvedere demands her right to give birth as a broodmare. No womb, no peace. Watch as the strangest heroes and female heroes of all go head-to-head with Cerebrus. Candy Aardvark and his wavery homophobia lines hold up against a Supreme Court decision. (laughs) Well, Dave Sims should get hit with lightning more often. (laughs) I don't know what the rate is now, but it should go up. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the the one thing I can kind of uh, admire is that um, it's a testament to, uh, in comics, if you do things independently, people really can't do anything to shut you up because <laughs> you, you can if if you have if you, can, if you can figure out a way to print the stuff yourself and sell it yourself like you can do crazy shit like that and no one can stop you 
I, I also find it frustrating that the idea of a hero who literally changes their gender depending on what pronouns they're referred to is a really cool idea if someone who wasn't a big bigoted shit baby was doing <laughs> Like, I can imagine Grant Morrison or someone like that handling that and it being like, oh, okay, yeah, that's, yeah. Like, yeah, also the, um, the mints, the gender queer a city that was a grant morrison concept mm. that was yeah that's danny the, the street. street yeah danny the street danny the street yeah danny the street <laughs> Damn right. okay so never miss semi- doom patrol at me <laughs> <laughs> so it's derivative even in this yeah. sense <laughs> just and um yeah it's derivative of a much better and cooler and and frankly sexier um <laughs> artist so yeah so fuck yourself dave sim you're not very good <laughs> I remember, and this uh, this uh, dates me a certain amount, and I'm aware of that. But the thing that in it's about 2007 that made broadly the notion of of trans issues really click in my like teen brain was reading the part in The Invisibles where one of the characters um, is is a trans woman, and they run into the kind of standard. It's the 90s, so we have to make people be bigots first kind of story arc. And she just explains, like, no, I actually, I have access to the female magic of my of my Amazonian tribe that I was born into because I am a, a woman. And it just does this backstory issue with it. And, sort, and it, I don't know, a light bulb went on uh, over my brain. And I was like, thank you, comic book. Now, I, now I'm less shitty of a person. It finally clicked. <laughs> and I had to, like, apologize to a friend of mine I'd known for a couple of years or I'd been kind of rude and shitty about that stuff. And I was like, yeah, uh, as a testament how stupid I am, I was reading a comic book and it made me realize that I had been a shit, shitty person to you. And they were like, I'm glad that you are aware of that now. And also, it's embarrassing that a comic made you realize that. And I was like, oh, yeah, I know. <laughs> Don't worry. This is a knock to my steam, yeah. But you know, I deserve it. Yeah, some I've uh, I've seen criticism of that stuff uh, in Invisibles, but um, growing up, uh, that I I did like that um, that issue, and I did like sort of uh, how it was discussed there. Because I mean, uh, for me, growing up, like <laughs> the only places I could see like other trans women was like. Uh, porn pretty much <laughs> like I, I i'd heard similar actually from a bunch of friends of mine from like of a similar age uh bracket yeah it's just there wasn't like uh i didn't there wasn't like now there's a lot of sort of public figures who are just kind of like living their lives and very um just kind of show all the different things that you can do um but when i was growing up there i just like was like my like my 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 uh where I was running into it was like in like Silence of the Lambs and like uh very sort of like negative uh yeah. places for it. And I was like I, I don't really relate to that at all. Um so it just made it kind of weirder and kind of scarier. Um but I uh yeah. Uh, so so that's one of the things I try to do now is ours is trying uh be example for other like trans women as far as like how different ways you can be and like how like it's really it really can be kind of chill um but yeah it was kind of a weird time for that stuff 
And a lot, a lot of the more positive stuff that was like out there at the time, I don't think is necessarily like aged super well, but I'm still glad that it existed. Yeah, there's. Yeah, I always wonder if I like go back to the Invisibles if I'll find it's not uh, it's aged badly because mm. it's it's very much of its time, and I wonder if the the politics and those of I guess identity issues are, are, have aged as badly as all the the references. In it. Well, there's that um that Sandman comic as well that yeah. has the tra- and that has not aged uh, very well at all. Um, but at the time it was considered, you know, very groundbreaking and very positive and like, cause I mean, again, like you're put, it's coming out in the context of like, you know, s- Buffalo Bill and Silence of the Lambs. Like, yeah. Cause that's... like that, that issue would come out, I think in like 91, 90 or 91. Yeah. Um, and Silence of the Lambs was 91 as well. So yeah, I was, I was about to bring up that same, that same issue that, um, one, it was kind of absurd that Neil Gaiman got called to task for it online, like like a year ago or two years ago, and it's like, well, mm-hmm. this was something that he bringing it to attention is is totally fair, but people being like, I'm going to start boycotting him now, <laughs> and it's like, one, he's already rich. I don't this now. It's too late now, um, but uh, he handled it fairly fairly well, I think, in terms of going like. My thought process at the time was I had queer friends, I had trans friends, and I only saw these um, depictions seemed to to span between it was either a wholly negative thing that like conservative art would uh, put up alongside like the degeneracy of being uh, gay and you're an addict and uh, like pushing all those things together, even though they don't really belong together, they're not really related to each other at all. Or alternatively, you'd see like a John Waters kind of uh it's made uh garish to freak out the squares and it's like it, it no no place for it to just be a normal thing about someone and he was like I just wanted to make it a normal thing about one of the characters and I probably messed that up but also I, I I'm sorry <laughs> um it's like yeah, I mean I admittedly I'm just, I mean, since that white dude, so my going like, oh, yeah, that that apology seems to check out is, you know, of low value compared to someone else. But it was like a guy legit being like, I, I don't know of anyone else who is doing this and I don't know where I would have found them in 1990. Uh, so I just took a stab at it because I was like, this sucks. My friends deserve better. And him mm-hmm. especially saying that it was coming from wanting to represent people in his life and, you know doing as good of a job at that as he could and as good of a job as he could not being necessarily that he did a good job or that he did the best job possible, but just, you know. Yeah. Well, the, the, the problem is even less that that happened then than that it's still happening because it's what that's coming out of is like allowing like, you know, cis het straight dudes like to, um, tell the stories of trans women and people of color like that and yeah. s- still kind of get the plaudits for it even though they don't really know what they're talking about and so like you see things like um, that Paul Jenkins there's like a Paul Jenkins uh, superhero comic called Alters um, which really sucks but like it's just like um, 
he it's like why 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 are you getting to tell this story why are you why do you want to tell a story it's just kind of like no like because because it's like whenever someone like that wants to tell like a story about trans people they always especially trans women they always want to fixate on the like coming out and sort of like the sort of trend the early transition period and they never want to tell like the story of like 10 years on like just sort of like being a normal like person and because yeah. uh, because to them that's not the that's not what they're interested in that's not the that's not, it's not salacious it's not what sells but that's also not really the experience for most trans people that's not like that's just a very small blip in our lives and you have to and like it's you have this kind of like awkward phase where you're coming out and you're kind of like having to uh establish yourself again and like that's that that's a very short short time period and then after it happens you kind of have to you know deal with the mundanity of life and you have a lot of like things that occur like after that that can be just as interesting but aren't 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 sort of salacious enough i guess for the what those audiences want in terms of their depiction of sort of trans women to the masses yeah we see it's um people allowing their like another aspect of that is people allowing their kind of intentionally or unintentionally like bigoted view of how uh, a group of people views themselves and operates to no longer be interested in uh, the kind of literary urge to tell stories about the shape of like the common shape of life or the Mm. shape of like, which in any other space that you're more familiar with, uh, it's it's an urge that sort of grows over time as you're an artist is to not just tell, you know, wild stories, which are fucking great. Like, everyone loves wild-ass stories. But also, like, we see this in, in a vast plurality in, like, literary fiction of the lives of, like, someone in their 30s or 40s or 50s just going through life. And they're just painted with... Uh, their life is painted with a complexity of, you know, yeah, I have family stuff over here. I have some job stuff over here. I have some unresolved emotional things from these places. I resonate with, you know, and it's treating the central character as though they're a complex of multiple different vectors, you know, just like, you know, normal people are. And then for whatever reason, those same authors who are able to do those kinds of work and can dem- have demonstrated like, yeah, no, you're able to think of people as people find a person of color or a trans person or something like that. And they hyper fixate on the most immediately and obviously dramatic component and then flatten all the personhood outside of that. So like the standard kind of creative writing class like 101 bullshit that you do of like before you write a character even if you never use it what's their favorite color what's the first time they kiss somebody you know do they have a favorite record um what do they do in their spare like just random stuff so you know about the character as a person that you're telling stories about Uh, it's like it's clear that that information isn't there for them which is 
like an in, an additional level of insanity because it's like how are you so bigoted that you literally forget like a basic ass function of telling a story about anything like like you yeah literally... it's it's that it's that you do that and then that you've chosen to do that in front of the whole world like you're like yeah uh, <laughs> let me embarrass myself it's like hey i'm uh kind of a bigoted jackass and I'm really stupid uh, and make bad decisions. Yeah. And I'm selectively shitty at my job, too. Just <laughs> like a whole, like I'm, I've got layers to how dumb and stupid I am. You're like, that's crazy. Normally people just, you know, anyone can write a draft of anything they want. Normally you look at it and you go, nope, and you delete it. And that's, that's fine. You, why didn't you do that? <laughs> Why didn't you just go, you know, it, it was good in my brain, but it's it's not actually good here on the page. So I'm just going to, just going to, nope. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, um, yeah, we better wrap, kind of find an end because it's one hour, 40 minutes almost. <laughs> so um, where can people find your stuff, Sarah? Um, so my Squarespace is probably like the best like portal for everything. And that's... Um, mercurioblonde.squarespace.com but generally I'm on all the social medias at mercurioblonde I've kind of uh, taken over that I nobody for some reason nobody else has uh, used that branding on anything so I've been able to grab it on pretty much everything so you can find me on um, Instagram, Twitter um, you know all that stuff I uh, use, I do tweet a lot of stuff. Um, I started to I've started to post more of my criticism on my actual website. Uh, so that's uh, the, my website has like that component, and then it's got um, like all the different all my stores, Patreon, and all that stuff. Yeah, and once again, it can't be really emphasized enough. Really, really good at criticism, folks. Thank you. For, yeah, like this uh, one about. Um, What's it called? That stupid uh, book that almost won a Booker Prize. Uh, Sabrina. Uh, Sabrina. Yeah, I was like, a lot good. of stupid books almost won a Booker Prize. You haven't narrowed <laughs> that down at all. <laughs> okay, stupid comic book that almost won a Booker Prize. Well, not yet, like a comic book that's embarrassed that it's a comic book. But um, yeah, people at home, go read that one. Read, read that instead and, um, of reading Sabrina. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, her... Uh, You'll save yourself time and money. Yeah, Sarah's <laughs> criticism is fucking great. Posts a lot of it on Patreon. It's insanely prolific. Um, <laughs> and then also, like, the, the comic work is, if you like looking at things or reading or both, you will like them. <laughs> you have to not like seeing things to not like any of the <laughs> images in the comic. Like, like, does sight itself offend you? Not, not for you, then. Just gonna yeah, that, that's not my target audience, I guess. <laughs> and um, so, and when's the the Mecca book coming out? Has that got a, a rough date yet? Uh, it should be the first issue. Should be the summer. I'm trying to uh, do uh, do it in larger chunks than Goro, so I'm gonna do. I'm trying to do like four kind of forty to fifty page uh, comics instead of eight like twenty to thirty page comics. Um, so, and that first one should come out this summer and that's, uh, that's called Aorta and it's, uh, yeah, Aorta? Cool. yeah, it's going to be a crazy mech thing. 
And my my That's awesome. my final purely self-serving question: Do you have any plans for collections of your work, or just single issues right now? <laughs> it's tough because it's like yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. I have to. It, it it costs a lot of money to like collect stuff, so I'd have to do either a Kickstarter or I have to start bugging publishers. Um, but the problem problem with that is, even though I've like worked with publishers and I have like friends at different ones it's uh um my there's not really other stuff like mine out there that i can look and sort of see like this that the oh this publisher is handling work like mine well and i would not be losing money by giving it to someone else Um, yeah like top shelf is probably the first one that i would think of for something like that but i don't know if they accept solicitations or if that's literally just Alan Moore, Eddie Campbell, and friends. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, become friends with them. <laughs> I've, uh, yeah, I think, yeah, I, I, well, I'm, I'm, my, my best friend is friends with uh, Haley Campbell, so I'm like two degrees away from being friends with Eddie Campbell, I suppose. Nice. <laughs> cool. uh, well, if you make a Kickstarter, I will personally drive the shit out of it because. <laughs> uh, I want, I want it, and also very little was as frustrating as when I went to go buy another issue of uh, the Leopard, and it was sold out. And then you were oh. like, "Yeah, no, I, I'm going to reprint I, them." I, I just, like, uh, I just got uh, the box from the printer for. I've got uh, the last uh, Leopard volume printed, and then the first two. I've got a couple extra of those, so that stuff should be up in the store. I don't know when you guys post this, but. Should be up in the store next Thursday, which will be the 11th of April. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that'll either be in the future or past, depending on when you listen to this. Dear reader, uh, <laughs> if you don't buy it, I will cut you in half with a sword. <laughs> it's Also, it's worth noting, I'm, I'm holding them right now. Uh, the pages are fucking enormous, uh, and the colors are super vibrant so like it it's very obvious when you get one why they would be as expensive to produce as they are like it's it, also the fact that there's no ads in any of it the art for the cover it's unique art for uh, the front and back of the covers um the paper stock is clearly very good like it's uh it's a uh, an agonizingly luxurious uh print print release <laughs> yeah oh well, i mean i like to i like to read comics like physically so i yeah I, I, and i also like way. also like that size dimension that sort of european like more squarish large large format comic yeah the, like the magazine format rather exactly than, uh, yeah so um you the second piece of music you picked uh, do you, which we kind of alluded to earlier. Do you want to give a little? Um, you're going to make you're, you're going to make guys? me uh, pronounce the name of the band. I don't yeah, want I to. Do it, so someone has to. Uh, Le Real uh, It's a Japanese band, actually. Um, the name of the song is uh, "Night of the Assassins," and it's uh, they're like a fucking crazy Japanese band from the '70s. Uh, one of their band members like hijacked an airplane and flew it to North Korea, and yeah, they're they're nuts. And as you'll hear, they play this like really fucking heavy, like 
rock punk rocky sound it's like uh, i I think your description uh earlier gareth was uh dead on when you're like um uh so you so you like the velvet underground yeah fuck you that was lined up yeah yeah there you go Uh, i think i think that was an adequate explanation yeah this this is like that is would be a great title for like a compilation of theirs they are or a Kapuna t-shirt they uh if if you happen to look them up, you'll notice pretty quick. They only have, I think, one or two studio albums. Uh, and then they have way more live albums than makes any sense whatsoever, especially given that they only have, like, ten songs total. Like, even a lot of songs recur on their two studio releases. And that's because you really can't find any two instances where they played the song that they sound anything like another. One yeah, well, another. they're basically kind of a jazz... Uh, jazz doom metal punk rock band or something yeah it's like what if so if the allman brothers is what if jam bands were good um well, the weird scenario that that isn't true because they're bad um le, le real de nu i maybe that's that how you say it sounds uh, good is uh what if jam bands were good and also fucking freaked out <laughs> They saw some scary shit a second ago. <laughs> Part <laughs> of the left-wing terrorist groups. They're, uh... This dude's in the Japanese Red Army. Yeah. They li- <laughs> the dude went on board a plane with a samurai sword and a load of pipe bombs, kidnapped a hundred people, flew them to South Korea, because the, um, the Japanese government decided to trick him into thinking that he had actually flown to North Korea. <laughs> so they dressed up a South Korean airport to look like a North Korean one, but he was too smart for it, the basis from Riyadh the New. So he, he said, no, fly me to Pyongyang, where I want to go, because I want to do some real communism in Pyongyang. So he got there, and he kidnapped the Japanese interior minister or someone. And yeah, he's, he's <laughs> still hanging out in Pyongyang, I bet having a great, great time there. The, the, band, like everyone does. the band loves uh, noise, punk, metal, psychedelia, prog, uh, jazz, uh, katanas, and communism. And if you don't think that that becomes like a, like a, uh, like a, like a super combining mech of, uh, kick your ass, uh, whip ass tunes, you're fucking stupid. (laughs) Yeah, that's like the whole aesthetic. What are you even doing listening to this if you don't think that shit's cool? Yeah, that's... (laughs) It's like if we traveled back in time and formed a band and were good at music. <laughs> yeah. So, well, I, I could probably do the, like the crazy guitar noodling. That could be my contribution <laughs> to this. But um, yeah, so this is uh, Les Real de News with uh, Night of the Assassins. And we're going to be back real soon with some more stuff. We've got so much shit happening. I, I've even got a, a copy of the new Ian McEwen. Holy uh, shit, we actually desk. got it. <laughs> He's, uh, yeah, we, awesome. we, uh, we got it. You you didn't get it because they don't want to give it off in uh, PDF, so you can't actually read it. <laughs> we, totally <laughs> fair. Ian, Ian and I have yeah, actually been fair. talking about doing some stuff together, so that's pretty cool that you're interviewing him. Ian McEwen? Yeah. That, are, are you... Were you, are you talking about the comic artist or the book art uh, book author? No, no, no. The, the really shitty book artist. Oh. The, the really, really bad. Novel. There's a really good. There's, there's, there's a really oh, good comic artist. That must be so confusing name. for you. Yeah. Oh, 
I'm sorry, yeah. Amy Kuhn is like the neoconservative uh, literary doyen of the UK. He Ugh. wrote On oh. Chesil Beach, which is like the best we're getting a divorce novel that's been written, and then he immediately went fucking insane. <laughs> he wrote... His new one's about robots. <laughs> he wrote a chapter of a book from the perspective of a fetus that wasn't born yet, and it's only scared of two things, abortion and 9-11. <laughs> I'm not oh, and kidding. campus radicalism. Oh yes, that's right. Political correctness. The fetus also hates political correctness. <laughs> so is that also up for a Man Booker Award? Uh, probably. Uh, he, he's like probably he just gets a Man Booker. I think they get there's a separate category for just giving them to Amy <laughs> Q. I was uh, I was telling my partner she's been reading a, a tale for the time being, which was a finalist for the Man Booker, and I was telling her. How being a finalist for the Man Booker sometimes means that you're a very good book and you didn't win the Man Booker because you're not shitty enough. So they <laughs> they name things to be the finalist for the Man Booker so that you think they have credibility. So that when they give their the prize to some neo-reactionary piece of shit, you're like, that one's got to be good too. <laughs> I think you've cracked the so, nut yep. on that. That was what that was what the book was called, wasn't it? It was like the the something nuts, <laughs> the the one the fetus was something nuts, something. But um, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that's coming up. Machines like me by Amy join Kuhn, us for that one, one, in which Gareth tells me about the book, and I can't stop laughing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's gonna, it's gonna be good. And um, there's some other cool stuff. The Julieta Scoria, who is a legit good yes. novelist, is coming up. That's going to be so good because I've been reading her short stories for years, never touched her novels. She's got a new one. It's amazing. Uh, there's politics. If you like some politics, the Socialist Manifesto. We've finally written a Socialist Manifesto and it's coming out. We've despite Engels, finally cracked socialism. despite Engels specifically saying we should not write a, a Socialist Manifesto, we've done it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so finally cracked socialism. Fuck that guy. What's gonna... he know? He just wrote the Communist Manifesto. What's that? He's probably stupid. <laughs> yeah. He was a factory owner anyway. What does he know? <laughs> but, um, uh, yeah, so that's coming up and yeah, other stuff. <laughs> we we um, have literally more stuff on the docket than we have firm plans for, which is, uh, which is insane yeah. for us considering last year it was like, it's like, holy shit, we're, we're recording in two days. What are we doing it on? And now it's like, oh shit, when are we going to fit this in? <laughs> yeah, that's... Oh yeah, I, th there's stuff I haven't even told you about. Like, uh, oh, there's a whole other book you've got to read now. Fuck! <laughs> uh, yeah. Not, not not this week, don't worry. It's for a couple of weeks. But uh, yeah, that's with... Uh, I've even got a guest that I've even told you about. So, yeah. You know, more more stuff is happening that I can possibly keep a track of right now. So yeah, keep keep on checking us out and being being our, our sworn war brothers on the Patreon. And um, here's uh, Les Reals de Nu with Night of the Assassins, and it's twelve minutes long. Uh, your speakers aren't broken; it just does sound like this. <laughs> Thank you. 
Oh, oh, oh. 